Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. We're recording this podcast the way we record every podcast by telephone. I'm in the middle of the woods wearing the collared shirt with the pink flora and mother's hat. (laughs) Jeff, you're in your office at the Great Northern. This episode of Twin Peaks, a lot of things happened that... I think maybe we thought might happen in the first episode of Twin Peaks, just as just as far as a, a little bit of restatement of what Twin Peaks is about and what's going on with this season. Uh, what did you think about part seven, Jeff? I liked it. I think it's strange when I uh, when I got to the end of it. I have to admit that. I felt maybe a little overwhelmed because of all the reasons that I think that it's actually a good episode of Twin Peaks. First of all, like, yeah, you're right. The the, the drama of the episode was uh, largely about people getting up to speed on things that we already knew and then maybe twisting it ahead and pushing it ahead uh, a, a little bit. Uh, there were definitely like a, a number of intriguing things that captured my imagination, but coming off of several weeks in which I found my imagination captured mostly by uh, certain kinds of filmmaking sequences and certain kinds of moods, uh, this episode uh, emphasized, emphasized more about like I felt like plot and and moving things forward and getting everyone up to, up to speed not that it was hurting for strangeness or eeriness or a little bit of mood but interestingly enough that the things that i've been enjoying most about the season this episode i feel like didn't didn't really kind of satisfy me on that level but on the whole i do think that the show needed this episode i think it needed it like right about now to help give everyone some clarity, to get all the characters aware of, of what's going on and what's at stake. I had mixed feelings about it right in, in the aftermath of it, but kind of reflecting on it, I found a lot to appreciate about it. I actually really do appreciate the fact that David Lynch and Mark Frost and everyone involved in Twin Peaks didn't seem to really feel the need to have any like super obvious, you know, resettling of the foundation of this show in the first six parts. I, I can tell that's been frustrating for some people. It's been frustrating for me. You know, it's interesting that it took us this long to kind of get to a point where they're just seem to be a general consensus among all the characters of, you know, like, where is this all going exactly? And and, and the fact that, as you said, Jeff, you know, just kind of every mystery of this season, there seemed to be a a nice moment this week where, you know, characters discovered something. Like, I I think that's really interesting to have kind of thrown all these things out there in part one and only now in part seven are we kind of figuring out, you know, who is the dead body and, you know, who is this guy who we have in this penitentiary? But I I have to say, just one thing that you mentioned that really jumps out at me, I kind of love that, uh, you know, early in part seven, we had a moment between Hawk and Sheriff Truman that was basically Hawk and Sheriff Truman trying to figure out what 
Twin Peaks Firewalk with me means. Like they had sort of discovered they you know they had discovered three of the final missing pages from the diary of Laura Palmer, the secret diary of uh, of Laura Palmer, and you know they're sort of reading through one page. One page said, you know, I, I had a dream last night. In the dream, this woman said, "My name is Annie. I've been in the lodge with Dale and Laura. The good Dale is in the lodge, and he can't get out. Write this down." And I love just the look on Robert Forster's face. As he kind of pondered that and just kind of said, what do you think this means? Which I feel like that's the look that most of us had the first time we saw the film Firewalk With Me. And I did sort of love that. I mean, like I, I do sort of think that on a show that so rarely has tried to explain anything, I love that Robert Forster is now the sort of designated somewhat normal person who, you know, is, is not averse to the weirdness, but would like some amount of clarity. Um, I'd be intrigued to know, how did you kind of feel about, you know, the revelation that what Hawk found were these kind of missing pieces from this diary that had such totemic significance for the original show. I I liked that sort of picking up of that thread from Firewalk with me. Um, and though I, I did like how uh, Hawk kind of. <laughs> Again, just thinking about the wonderful role that Robert Forster is serving in this season. I like how he said, how do you think these pages got into our bathroom? And Hawk was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, Leland was actually in the sheriff's office a lot back in back in the original <laughs> show. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it happened we brought him in for questioning about Jacques Renault. I, I liked that little bit of teasing sort of self-awareness from Lynch and Frost that were like, you know, we're not quite sure when this happened, but, you know, it certainly happened somewhere in season two. <laughs> I love everything about Robert Forster's performance in this show. I think he's doing a lot for this series. He's He's such a grounding influence, um, both in terms of the, the oddness and the weirdness and the mystery, but also emotionally, as as we'll talk about in a second, with the scenes with, with Doc and, and even the one-sided phone call with his brother, Harry. In this scene with him and Hawk, yeah, it was... Uh, the thing I loved about his performance is, is that I think maybe in any other show, you would think that the, the role of Truman, sort of the audience surrogate would be to listen to Hawk's story about the Black Lodge and all of this weirdness and kind of like roll his eyes at it or kind of like, you know, what are you talking about? Or this is crazy, you know, like he would be that guy and it would be kind of a a relief to hear someone say those kinds of things at the same time would be a little tedious um, because then it would be about like trying to have to convince this guy that actual weirdness is happening and then he'd have to experience it himself. But but with, with this Truman, with this Frank Truman, you, you kind of get the sense like he, he has questions, he's not certain. I, you get a sense of a guy who understands that weird things happen in Twin Peaks and it's filled with idiosyncratic people with, if they're not correct about how they look at the world, then at least they, they have something that needs to be listened to. They, they, they have a piece of the truth. And I think that it, it might also be helpful for um, listeners to know if, if you're curious about this Sheriff Truman, I believe the secret history of Twin Peaks establishes that he is one of the bookhouse boys. Um, are, are you, did, did you get that sense too from reading the book? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, one of the interesting things in the book, the, the book sort of does a nice job of basically saying, hey, like everything you think Sheriff Harry S. Truman ever did, his brother Frank was also there. And so, you know, they sort of grew up together. They were all bookhouse boys together. I believe the book also establishes that Nora's kind of layabout husband was a bookhouse boy. So yes. that has a particular sort of, you know, th- that has a particularly interesting kind of lineage of many of the characters who were in Twin Peaks. And so I think... I think that, yeah, like, that's kind of one nice thing is that, you know, in the same way that the original Sheriff Truman in the original run of Twin Peaks, as much as he was the sort of stand-up local guy, you quickly learned that he was aware of something strange in the woods. There's that great sequence where you first sort of meet all the bookhouse boys and you understand that, you know, they're very aware of what's going on out there in the darkness of the forest. And so this Sheriff Truman is as well. Um, but Jeff, while we're talking about the Sheriff's Truman, um, we should talk about, you were just, you were discussing... Uh, the sort of one-sided phone call that we saw uh, of Sheriff Truman calling his brother initially to bring him up to speed. And I thought it was interesting that we sort of learned a lot about the other side of the call just from sort of watching how Sheriff Frank reacted to it. Uh, We can kind of glean that Sheriff Harry S. Truman's health problems have only gotten worse. Um, You know, he didn't really wind up telling him anything about what's going on with the investigation. The call ended with him sort of saying, do me a favor, beat this thing I don't know about you I mean I get very easily emotional on this show when original characters appear this is the first time I think I've ever gotten emotional when an original character didn't appear but was just sort of being talked to on the other side of the phone we've talked a little bit Jeff about where we kind of think things might be going with Sheriff Harry. I mean, like, uh, where do you kind of think the show is kind of taking us with this plot line? It seems as if there's some interesting things potentially being set up sort of on the background here with, with that character. Yeah. Um, first of all, that scene was so affecting, and it's all due to Robert Forster and his interpretation of those lines and how he says them. And also how how Lynch lights and shoots him and this sort of like close-up that's just sort of on his face. There was a lot of close-ups last night. I mean, this was an episode that uh, Lynch's like uh, directing greatness was all about just letting his actors act and own that square box of of the screen, mostly with their faces. And this was like, uh, you know, later on in the episode with Diane in particular confronting Dirty Cooper was a, an amazing example of that. This was another one, just like the camera tight on Frank Truman's face, rocking that phone call, the, the tenderness, the poignancy, the history that you felt in those lines, that, you know, Harry, do me a favor, beat this thing, you know, and then calling him brother, you know, like it was so touching. But yeah, like with every phone call between these two brothers, like it seems that Harry's circumstances are getting a little more dire. I got the sense that uh, that Frank was learning that Harry is not where Frank thought he was. Um, it sounds like that he is... I, what I was interpreting, Frank's end of the conversation is that Harry is now in a different hospital somewhere um, under some kind of serious care, uh, new kind of care, maybe pursuing some sort of like last like gasp treatment. And, you know, I'm getting the sense that unless some miracle awaits Harry, Harry Truman is going to die 
in this season of Twin Peaks. Um, we may not see him die, but his death um, seems to loom. And it, and it does something for the show. Um, the, the show. This season is one of its many themes that's very much on its mind is aging and the fragility of our bodies and mortality. And this storyline seems to really, the storyline is really hitting this on, on the nose. But the idea of a major character dying sets us up for a concept of a funeral. So I'm beginning to wonder if the funeral of Harry S. Truman is going to be a major plot point that this story is is, is building up to, which things will happen um, that will bring the entire town together. You know, we haven't seen the entire town together in one setting. Not that that was something that Twin Peaks did all that often, but one of the times it did do it very vividly and memorably in the original series was the was the funeral of Laura Palmer. So you you wonder if there is a if if there is going to be an event that brings all of these characters this entire cast together um, in one spot. It might be the funeral of of Harry Truman. Now, I don't want poor Harry to die. I would love for him to stick around and beat this thing. Do us a favor, Harry. Beat this thing. Um, which sets us up for a different kind of moment. You know, we know from the official cast list that Michael Onkeen, the actor who played Truman, wasn't listed. But in the same way, Darren, that you and I hold out hope that maybe the show is holding out on a David Bowie cameo, uh, maybe that they were able to shoot before he passed away, Michael Onkeen, who who is retired from acting and kind of doesn't want anything to do with it, maybe they're holding out on Michael too. And you might imagine a very lovely moment to end the show in which Agent Cooper gets back to Twin Peaks with mind restored and goes and visits his old friend and uh, they do some fishing together or something. Um, uh, at this point, I, I kind of want Frank Truman along for the ride too because he's kind of stealing my heart and you kind of want to see them together as well. But um, it reminds me of the straight story, David Lynch's great underrated little scene uh, film, maybe his most experimental movie ever, because it is unlike any other David Lynch film. It is decidedly linear and not very dreamy, but incredibly beautiful. And it's about a lot of the themes that we're seeing with the older characters on this show, mortality, growing old with grace, how to do that. Um, and it ends with this beautiful moment, which after a very long journey, Alvin Strait, played by the late Richard Farnsworth, finally reaches his destiny. Spoiler alert, but you should watch it anyway, because the power isn't about the, the, the ending. Well, it isn't about whether or not you, you know if he's going to make it at the end. But he, he gets to the end after a long, perilous journey on his tractor. And uh, he, the, the emotional climax of the movie is just him reuniting with his brother and sitting on the porch together and looking at the stars. So you can imagine like an end of Twin Peaks where Cooper, after a long, strange journey back to Twin Peaks, like has an emotional moment by just, you know, meeting with his ailing friend um, in the same way that Alvin Strait's brother was ailing and just, you know, in, enjoying some some trout fishing or sitting on his ranch somewhere wherever he is in Twin Peaks. Much like a lot of this season, there's an aspect of the straight story where Lynch is kind of almost painting with mortality. Uh, the star of the movie, Richard Farnsworth, was yeah. 79 or 80 at the time. And in the same way that this season, you know, 
we discussed this a little bit in a, in a previous podcast, but the way that so much of the foundation of this season is characters whose, uh, you know, original performers have already passed on, you know, characters who unfortunately their, their performers have passed on. It lends such an interesting backdrop to this season. And, you know, somewhat on that note, um, after sort of talking to his brother, Harry, Frank decides that he'll talk to the one other person who, kn- who for sure saw Dale Cooper after emerging from the Black Lodge. That person, of course, is Doc Hayward, played by uh, the late, great Warren Frost. Um, our, our producer, Christina, pointed out that this appearance was particularly really poignant because Warren Frost is the father of Twin Peaks co-creator Mark Frost. This episode aired on Father's Day. And I just thought that you know, everything about this scene was really kind of lovely, you know, w- with that knowledge. Um, but also this scene was just incredible because it began with <laughs> with Sheriff Truman. Sheriff Truman calls up Doc Hayward and, you know, they're kind of having a, a, a quiet conversation. And then Sheriff Truman says, um, hey, Doc, uh, do you ever use Skype? And then <laughs> it turns out that Doc Hayward is a big fan of Skype. And then Sheriff Truman pulls a little stick on his desk and a computer screen emerges out of the wooden desk. This was some like like Roger Moore, James Bond type production design. I was very tickled by this. It, it made me think about how, in general, there's this interesting thing going on with the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department. You know, it looks the same as it always did and it still looks very wooden and old fashioned. But, you know, we know there's the room where the policemen have modern technology and seem to have kind of evolved and I-, I thought just this as a piece of production design was so wonderful but uh, you know how did you kind of feel about that scene in general Jeff there was a lot of interesting and sort of horrifying implications that came out of that conversation between Sheriff Truman and Doc Hayward yeah that was just a, a super moving scene to uh, have a, you know Warren Frost on the show and his to have his presence on the show and t- to know that this episode was airing on Father's Day that that scene was just touching enough without knowing any of this, right? Like just, you know, those two actors, Frost and Forster, are, are able to create a very touching, poignant moment with those lines reminiscing about the past, the whole bit of business about reminiscing about, about fishing and the joke that Doc Hayward like tells about fishing, about I caught two brown trout in my pajamas, <laughs> but like I don't know how they got in there <laughs> in the pajamas. And, and then how he like fried them up with some scrambled eggs right there like in the river. That that kind of stuff. It was just great, and um, you know, another kind of uh, a bit of maybe wink, wink subtext of it all is that you could also see it as an homage or a wink at the David Lynch Mark Frost working relationship, because uh, what we know behind the scenes is that after besides meeting and and, and writing the script. Um, with some occasional lunches in Los Angeles, they wrote most of it via Skype. So if you can, you know, you know, Lynch who identifies with the detective, old school sheriff types uh, in in the show, uh, and then of course, you know, Warren Frost, father of Mark Frost. So th- th- there's some interesting kind of stuff there. But yeah, the meat of that scene dealt with. Truman asking um, uh, Doc Hayward what he remembers about um, uh, Cooper's last day. 
in Twin Peaks, and we we know, um, but what they don't know yet is that 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 person was not Cooper, but was in fact um, Dirty Cooper. And one of the interesting things that we learn, maybe disturbing too, is is that the last time Doc Hayward saw Cooper. Cooper was leaving the ICU where Audrey Horn was in a room in the ICU in a coma. Um, So now, you know, seven hours into Twin Peaks, we get resolved through this conversation of all things, a a cliffhanger that anyone who hasn't read the secret history of Twin Peaks uh, didn't know, which is that Audrey Horn did survive that explosion at the bank. Um, at Twin Peaks Savings Alone, I believe, but that in the immediate aftermath of that explosion, uh, she was in a coma. And that all happened on the same day that Cooper was having his drama in the Black Lodge and then got trapped there. And then um, Annie and, and Dirty Cooper got expelled. So yeah, so on his last day in Twin Peaks, like Cooper went and visited, Dirty Cooper went and visited, I guess, Audrey Horn in the ICU. And I think that what Doc Hayward said was that that he was maybe in there for an hour. There was a very specific reference of, of, of time there. And uh, after spotting Cooper leave that room, he gave Hayward a look, a look that, that, seemed, that Hayward knew was just like it was a, a look of, well, he didn't like the look on Cooper's face. It was evil. It was unsettling. It was not natural. And then they walked away. So... Yeah, I, I don't know what what you want to make of that. You know, I I, I don't automatically want to go to a dark place um, with what Cooper was doing in Audrey Horn's room. There, Dirty Cooper was doing in Audrey Horn's room. But we, we let's acknowledge the fact that there is a younger Horn out and about in the world right now, and his name is Richard Horn, and he is a very dirty character, and he's roughly about 25-some-odd years old. And there has been a lot of fan conjecture. Um, Yes, I'm going to pin this on the fans, <laughs> but there's a lot of fan conjecture that Dirty Cooper had some kind of sexual interaction with Audrey and that he is the father of, of, of Richard Horn. I kind of came first to the idea of Richard Horn being Dirty Cooper's son. When I conceived of that, I was conceiving of Dirty Cooper going around to people who thought that he was Agent Cooper and taking advantage of that, which is its own kind of assault. Um, but, but the prospect of what might have happened between Dirty Cooper and a comatose Audrey Horn, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about how, you know... What this season is sort of saying about and doing to these iconic aspects of the original show. And, you know, one of the images that I just feel like you see all the time in any write-up of the original Twin Peaks is that shot from very early in the first season of Dale Cooper at the Double R Diner with Audrey sitting next to him. And, like, you know, that was very much, you know, a, a dynamic that defined the early part of the show. And it seems very clear to me that, you know, as Lynch and Frost have gone back over, they've decided... This this, this is something we're going to focus on. You know, you kind of noticed that uh, one thing Doc Hayward didn't mention was, oh, by the way, yeah, that same day Ben Horn came to my house and told my daughter that he was actually her father. Like, you know, there's some <laughs> there's some interesting aspects of, you know, here's what people have chosen to remember, and that's what we can interpret. The creators of Twin Peaks have looked back at their creation and decided this is what's kind of most important going forward. And so the idea that 
Audrey and Dale and where that went was, you know, there. I just found that to be particularly disturbing. And, you know, the fact that we received that information in a scene that wasn't necessarily disturbing on the face of it was weirdly all the more disturbing. I mean, I, I guess that's sort of what, what Lynchianness is sometimes. But yeah, I mean, we'll we'll discuss this like a, a little bit later. But the things we, gl- we gleaned about Dirty Cooper in this episode were somehow even much, much worse than the things that we've gleaned about him so far. Let's shift elsewhere in Twin Peaks, Jeff, um, a sequence that uh, seemed very important just because it actually featured some of Angelo Badalamenti's score, which, you know, just is to me an, a, a pretty major signpost that something is definitely going on. We saw uh, Deputy Andy was speaking to someone, a character who I believe he was credited as Farmer. Andy was asking him about his truck. It appeared to be the truck that uh, Dick Horn was driving last week. The guy seemed very antsy and was, you know, kind of told Andy, like, you know, I'll talk to you later, but you have to leave now. Uh, Deputy Andy, always very obliging, perhaps more obliging than a, a policeman should be, said, okay. Meet me at 4.30. He specifically mentioned meeting him uh, above Sparkwood in 21, which is the location where Laura Palmer last saw James, a location with lots of importance in Twin Peaks lore. And uh, one thing that jumped out to me from here was Andy said, meet me at 4.30, which I think might connect to the giant saying, remember, 4.30. But that jumped out at me. And what I thought was going to happen was they would meet and something really important and crazy would happen like maybe they'd meet and like two brain trees would also be there but uh no instead uh the meeting did not take place we we know we we saw andy at that location a really freaky sort of like couple of shots of him kind of waiting we cut back to the house we see the door is open you know i i not entirely clear what to make of this you know i you know was sort of assuming is this some greater connection to the dick horn red criminal coalition but I saw that um, many many people online were talking about like the fact that in this scene you had this close up on Andy's watch and it's a Rolex which I saw many people were like what Andy can't afford a Rolex like is he is he is he crooked too um, now I have to say Jeff the idea of Andy being a corrupt cop is you know interesting and horrifying enough that I'm wondering if it might be true but I'm, I'm not sure that I quite jumped there what was your interpretation of what was going on in this sequence it's a sequence of actual criminal investigation on Twin Peaks. And pretty terrible criminal investigation, I think. I mean, like, I don't think that these scenes uh, flattered Deputy Andy as some great detective. Clearly now the death of that child and that hit and run is a major concern of the police department. And Andy seems to be at the forefront of, uh, of investigating it. And he very quickly determined where to track down the vehicle, at least. And we remember last week, um, the pie aficionado got a really good look at that truck and maybe even the license plate. And so we might assume in events not seen that I believe her name was Miriam, uh, went and reported what she saw to to the police department, and they managed to immediately track the plates to this house. Um, that very much looked like the truck. We might note something that we didn't discuss at all last week, which is the truck is parked underneath power lines. And there was this interesting moment last week that we didn't really analyze in, in, in detail where 
um, after Dick Horn dumped the truck in what looked like to be a field, maybe the, the, the larger grass field that we're seeing here, there were these conspicuous shots um, in the reflection of his windshield of power lines and electrical poles, and you heard the distinct humming of electricity, and all of that, of course, sort of denoting the presence of Black Lodge activity possible, feeding once again this notion that maybe like Richard Horn is some kind of Black Lodge entity or has some Black Lodge DNA in him. So I thought it was interesting that we had the visual cue reminder of that truck against the backdrop of of power lines in the background. But yeah, back to Deputy Andy and how terrible of a a detective he is (laughs) or a lawman. So yeah, so so look, like I just got to think that like if you're investigating a hit and run, and you know what the you, you know the vehicle, and you you go and visit him, and the guy is clearly suspicious as all heck, um, and you know it just like he's he's nervous, he's anxious, he doesn't want to talk about it here. I have a story to tell, but but if you'll just give me like two hours and meet me at some like far away location from here, like I'd be happy to meet you. No, I think that you could just like immediately arrest him under suspicion of vehicular <laughs> manslaughter and bring him down to the station. But Deputy Andy here in a small town, like maybe he knows this guy, they have history, like trusting him just a little too much, like, oh, sure, okay. So the clue about 430, does it equal 430? You know, I mean, look. Don't put it past Twin Peaks to tell us that that's exactly what the giant meant. Because, like, clues that are given to mysteries are not supposed to, like, add up to anything, like, logical or, like, you know, on the nose. Like I said last week, if (laughs) if all the clues that the giant gave us meant that, like, the correlation between 430 was going to be this time in which Andy was not going to meet a possible suspect in the murder of, of a small child in a hit and run. Okay. But with that said, Darren, let's reflect now on what we've seen so far. And we might wonder like if, if Cooper is, is going to come to Twin Peaks eventually, and he's going to investigate something and that these clues are going to mean something to him, we might wonder kind of what, you know, like what these clues might mean. So if he is, coming to Twin Peaks to to investigate what? Like Richard Horn? My theory, and I don't know if I've shared it on this show yet, but you and I have talked about this pretty clearly off the show, is, is that we're going to get some kind of climax between Cooper and Dirty Cooper in Vegas around mid-season. And it is going to result in the destruction of Dirty Cooper and at least physically, and my theory is that the spirit of Bob is going to escape Dirty Cooper in this. Cooper will get his mind back and fully restored, but Bob will once again be on the loose now that Dirty Cooper as a physical entity has been destroyed, but he might seek a new host. So one potential candidate for that could be Richard Horn. Not that there wouldn't be any other reason why a lawman would want to hunt Richard Horn, who seems to be a pretty (laughs) bad guy. Um, But let's just say that, you know, if Cooper is coming back to Twin Peaks specifically to bring Bob to justice, 
you know, maybe these clues that he's getting are all adding up to solving a mystery about what Richard Horn did on this day. And, um, you know, maybe he uh, had business with Linda, Richard and Linda. Um, Maybe the reason why that guy couldn't meet his appointment with Deputy Andy at 4.30 is because Dick Horn got that guy. Um, I'm also a little worried, Darren, that, like, maybe these clues mean, like, does Andy go missing at 4.30? Is Andy a possible goner on this show? Like, so, yeah, I mean, if if, if 4.30 means something, um, it's probably something pretty dark. <laughs> You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast with Jeff Jensen and Darren Franich. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's going to wrap up the events in the town of Twin Peaks, Jeff. Um, great little sequence at the at the Great Northern. Love. I still love how so much of this show is just wood sometimes. This was an especially woodsy episode. Back at the Great Northern, the decor hasn't changed too much since the early 90s, although they do no longer use keys. Uh, we had a great little scene between Ben Horn and his assistant Beverly. There seems to be some strange humming going on inside of the hotel. You know, there's always been weird stuff happening in this hotel. We can assume that this humming is just the latest strangeness. Although, uh, as always, whenever anything weird happens in the Great Northern, the mind kind of goes to, oh, is this is this Josie? Is she still around? Is she still kind of haunting the various woodsy interiors of this hotel? I kind of just want to call out this scene briefly because uh, one person we've not talked about too much, and I'm realizing now on the topic of mispronunciation, I've never said his name out loud, but Richard Bamer or Richard Beimer, who plays Ben Horn, was always one of my favorite parts of the original series, and I'm really tickled that we we, we saw comparatively a lot of him in this hour of television. Um, you know, there was just the scene was kind of just him and Beverly kind of walking back and forth, but I thought there was something kind of endearing about it. There was clearly some sort of flirtation going on between them. Ashley Judd, who was strangely one of the first people we saw this season, great to kind of 
pick up with her. But the, the scene had a wonderful sort of button to it where, you know, she kind of mentioned that, you know, oh, we, we got this key from way back in the day. And that kind of sent Ben Horn back into a reverie. And he mentioned, oh, uh, that was the room where Agent Cooper got shot, which led Beverly to say, who's Agent Cooper? And he, and he said, oh, well, you know, he was he was he was investigating, you know, the, the death of Laura Palmer, which led Beverly to say, who's Laura Palmer? <laughs> Which I thought I thought was just sort of a, a very non sequitur kind of funniest moment of, of the episode, but uh, you know I don't want to linger too long here, Jeff. But clearly Beverly seems like she'll be an important character, and we have actually seen comparatively quite a bit of Ben Horn this season compared to some of the other original Twin Peaks crew. How'd you feel about kind of like this sort of sequence of, of events following them? Again, another scene that it speaks something to Ben's character. Yeah, he's flirting with her. Maybe he kind of like nudged the door a little bit by like kind of breaking the the professional rapport between them. Like, don't call me Mr. Horn, call me Ben and all of that. And he left. But as soon as she left the room, he had a kind of crestfallen kind of look that um, you, you get the sense that Benjamin Horn is this chastened man and chastened by a, a, a pretty bad history that has left him... Uh, feeling somewhat ashamed and and that kind of informs how he interacts with people here uh, in, in the present. So we'll, we'll see whether or not he pushes things with Beverly. Beverly seemed to be open to it. And we, we found out that Beverly might have some reason to be open to the attentions of, of, of Ben because we found out that she has a tough life back at home with a husband who seems to be terminally ill and is bitter and uh, about dying. Again, once again, like mortality um, informing all of this. Um, and she kind of, you know, what was touching about that scene, I don't know if people were frustrated by it. Um, at all, because, you know, she comes home and um, she kind of suffers uh, Tom's suspicious mind. And then she kind of yells at him, you know, I had to take this job for us. I didn't have to go back to work and, you know, and don't fuck this up for us. You, you could kind of like say that that doesn't really kind of speak well to her. But if you've ever been in a sort of caretaking situation with a terminally ill person, it, it's incredibly exasperating and frustrating and like I like having known that experience I, I I saw a lot of that um in her so um so yeah so again Twin Peaks doing some things that I really like here where like kind of like the Doris scene last week between her and Frank where uh, a character presents as one way and then you get just a, a little piece of personal information about that person's situation that completely reframes the way that you understand how they interact. Um, that, that, that was this lo- lovely little beat. Jeff, unfortunately, there was no musical number at the Roadhouse this week, <laughs> but we had a kind of a dance sequence with uh, a shot of a man brooming through the Roadhouse, which uh, th- that shot lasted longer than some episodes of Better Call Saul. Um, <laughs> I uh, Main takeaway from this scene is that uh, the actor, uh, Walter Olkowicz, who played the character Jacques Renault in the original series, he seems very down to play the 
the most disgusting human beings in the town of Twin Peaks. He's now playing some brother or cousin Renault. I'm not sure we've really heard who Jean-Michel is related to the Renault family of the original series, uh, but it's clear that he is equally scuzzy. He was talking on the phone about 15-year-old A students who apparently he is employing the same way he used to employ uh, Laura Palmer back in the day. Seems like this is a flag being planted towards something, not quite sure what. General grossness, I think it's it's fair to say, but um, I was disappointed given the awesome musical lineup at the Roadhouse. I, I was hoping that perhaps this new Renault had uh, turned a corner for the family, but uh, it's clear that that is not the case. <laughs> Let's talk briefly, Jeff, about uh, what's going on at Buckhorn PD. Main piece of business here, Jeff, we had final confirmation to the extent that that word exists with this show uh, about the identity of the male half of the awful male-female murder that uh, seems to have taken place in Buckhorn. That is the headless body of Major Briggs. Uh, Lieutenant Knox had sort of tracked his fingerprints there. Uh, I I liked how, again, in in an episode full of sort of dark humor, (laughs) the sort of buildup of her saying, where'd you get these fingerprints from? And the cops saying, oh, like, from his fingers was sort of a very ghoulish piece of business. Um, Main points here are uh, it appears to be Major Briggs. His body appears to be in his late 40s and not the 70s, which following the normal path of time, it should be. And apparently the uh, Buckhorn Police Department has concluded that he died just a few days ago. Um, You know, we can glean that uh, perhaps Major Briggs was off involved in some other dimension as he had been a couple of times in Twin Peaks history. I I think the main standout moment of this whole sequence was as Lieutenant Knox was calling back home to to the character played by Ernie Hudson, whose name I'm I'm forgetting now. We sort of saw that that interesting charred-looking man walking around the background, almost seeming to kind of circle in closer to Major Briggs, I thought. Or perhaps this figure has just been sort of haunting the Buckhorn Police Department ever since it first arrived there. Still not quite sure what to make of all this. We've talked a lot about the Major Briggs aspect of this season. You know, good to get that kind of confirmation. It seems very clear to me that the search for Major Briggs's head is going to be some plot arc going forward, which I was not expecting when this season began. But, um, you know, Jeff, uh, you've talked about your kind of uh, fandom of some aspects of the Buckhorn PD before. Any kind of thoughts on the latest developments in this uh, extremely mysterious case? Yeah, the the charred man kind of stole the show for me. I mean, the, the second that you see this figure in the deep background, blurry, start walking toward Lieutenant Knox while she's on the phone and gaining mass as it approaches. It, it was kind of haunting. You, you you saw this guy coming. You immediately kind of like, oh, it's just someone in the background. But then the longer the shot held, you could tell, uh-oh, like that's going to be someone we know. And then when we, we get focus and we understand that it is the charred man from that creepy scene in parts one or two um, that, that disappeared from that jail cell, 
I was like, all right. I mean, it reminded me of like, uh, you know, when, when, when I interviewed David Lynch the day after the part one and two aired and he, he said very vividly, you know, like, you know, keep your eye on that guy. He's coming back, you know, and in a rare moment of David Lynch teasing anything in this show, like I, I've been, I've been eagerly anticipating the return of the charred man. And it was kind of like, you know, we, we saw him again. Um, after she wraps her phone call and he comes back, she comes back into the room and she kind of tells the Buckhorn PD, you know, I don't think this is going to be your case for much longer. And off of that line, the camera kind of shifts over so that we could see the chart man walk through the hallway past. And I immediately thought, I don't think it's going to be any of your cases for much longer because clearly <laughs> the, the foreshadowing here is that maybe this, that this guy is here to take care of some business and the, the the whole episode seemed to be setting us up for the the bad guys trying to take care of business, um, whether it's the charred man dealing with this investigation or, or maybe Dirty Cooper and Ray, which we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, the mystery of headless Major Briggs. Could we safely say that the Major Briggs that we saw in the original Twin Peaks was late 40s, or did he seem older to you? Uh, well, I mean, to me, Major Briggs in the original series seemed truly immortal, quite frankly. Uh, he seemed to have, like, you know, been the alpha and omega of human history. But, um, in fact, uh, Don S. Davis, the wonderful actor who played Major Briggs, he was born 1942, which, yes, would have made him late 40s at that time. They, they don't really make guys in their late 40s like that anymore, Jeff. Indeed, right. I'm not sure they were doing it at the time. It, it makes me wonder, Darren, if, like, you know, there was that one episode in season two of, of, of Twin Peaks where Major Briggs disappeared and then he came back. He, he claimed that I think that he maybe time traveled. That was one of the implications of of his disappearance, that, that maybe he went back to the World War II era. Am I getting that wrong? What you're getting right is that in one of the greatest scenes in television history, he suddenly <laughs> appeared back in his home wearing, it, it, like, it even looked pre-World War II, he was wearing this like pilot garb, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that you see like, yes, um, you, right. know, uh, you, you know, like, you know, pilots from the 1920s sort of wearing when they, you know, when they were kind of like flying across the ocean and so forth. Um, but then if you recall, Jeff, that led to his description of that when in a scene that I'm pretty sure only I care about but I care so much about this scene we saw him on like a throne in the middle of some Edenic landscape so yeah like I I, I do think that, that that happened again I think we're meant to understand that you know not long after the end of season two and that kind of final meeting between him and Dirty Cooper that we've heard about a few times he may have gone back into that extra dimensional space or something like that we, we might wonder then Either Major Briggs got a doppelganger somewhere along the way, and uh, that doppelganger Ooh. has now dead, or Major Briggs got displaced in time back in his last encounter with Dirty Cooper and manifested here in the present and then got killed. So, I mean, if you're looking for a theory about why Major Briggs, if, if that truly is the body of Major Briggs then how can he be a 40-something-year-old man, i.e. as old as he was when we last saw him, then either 
time travel, which seems to be possible within the the metaphysic supernatural aspect of this show, or doppelganger. Yeah. Jeff, uh, one of the things I liked about this episode, one of the things that I bet a lot of people out there liked about this episode is um, this was the first time where... uh, you had a scene with a group of people and then the immediate next scene was about that same group of people. Uh, I'm talking specifically about the kind of sequence of events that took place with the FBI and Diane. Um, You know, that kind of first scene of Albert coming in to tell Gordon what happened when he met Diane and saying that, you know, you know, you basically have to come and talk to her now, Gordon. I assumed that, well, that's great. We'll see them talk in part 10, probably like I, I, shouldn't get my hopes up here but no it was, it was you know really wonderful standout episode for laura dern they went to diane's house in just a great bit of character setting um gordon asks her do you have any coffee and she says no and i don't have any cigarettes either as she's smoking a cigarette that was my favorite moment of this whole part and, and drinking coffee i i love that so much you know implications that she was not happy to see them, not happy to do anything with the FBI. The fact that she knew somehow it was all about Agent Cooper, very interesting. Um, We kind of followed them. Again, talk about rapid plot movement. She kind of seems to agree to go with them. And I said, okay, well, that's good. Maybe next week we'll kind of check back in this. And the immediate next scene was them flying to South Dakota in a plane that was super wood paneled on the inside, like all the Bond villains planes were back in the late 60s. Um, but uh, I, uh, I lot to kind of take in with just the sort of dynamic here. Um, you know, Jeff, how did you feel about the fact that we just got so much Diane? in this episode after last week when you know we sort of talked about the sort of the sort of cruelty of just seeing her say two words and then cutting away from her for the rest of that hour yeah um yeah i I was very pleased to get a solid hit of diane and kind of see how she lives and see her attitudes very much defined she you know this person may have once upon a time believed in law and order and everything that agent cooper stood for but she, like you know she's very clearly marked by a profound betrayal both personally and by her job you know like one of her final lines this whole sequence is she's like downing a bottle of vodka and like you know like fucking FBI she said or something like that um <laughs> she she had choice four letter words for everyone like either her term of endearment or her just general world view was fuck you <laughs> but yeah obviously you know, the thing that immediately, probably for longtime Twin Peaks fans who were always wondering about Diane and was charmed by the Cooper-Diane relationship, when Gordon Cole and Albert go to her home and, yeah, they, they start talking about Cooper and they kind of mention that he's in a federal penitentiary, her first response was, good. And you got the sense of someone <laughs> that relationship had gone south. And so we we got this great scene where um, Diane goes into that room and raises the curtain and is able to operate the microphone and has a conversation with Dirty Cooper. Once again, just remaining absolutely dead-eyed, black-eyed, still this just this rock. And he was as he did in his scenes with with. Cole and Albert and Tammy earlier in the season, 
kind of speaking in that really kind of like slow, sluggish voice that sounded like, um, and I wonder if this is un- intentional, um, the effect that you might have of Agent Cooper's voice if you were listening to it on a tape recorder at a slightly slower speed. You can imagine that maybe back in the day, Diane transcribed his tapes like that by slowing him down and hearing his voice like that. But yeah, um, you know, her job in that moment was clearly to confirm whether or not this was truly Agent Cooper. And they referenced some scene, something that happened between them. I think we can assume that they are referring to a moment that happened after Agent Cooper got trapped in the lodge, when Dirty Cooper is now spilled out into the world and clearly visiting some people from um, Cooper's life, including Audrey, and then including Diane coming to her apartment, coming to her house um, at, at some point. And something happened between them that night and again, our mind goes to the dark place. Did he did he make a move on her? Did he sexually assault her? Did what happened? But clearly, whatever happened that night, she never forgot it. It marked her pretty deeply and darkly, and left her completely, profoundly angry at the world, at at Cooper, at the FBI, and everything it stood for, what it claimed to stand for. But being able to look him directly into his black eye. Um, she was left convinced that like this monster is not Agent Cooper. There is something missing, she said, in him. Um, so now the FBI is up to speed somewhat on what we know. Um, they have confirmation through a credible witness that that guy is not Agent Cooper. Yeah, and you know the sequence of all this happening with the history that you know Laura Dern has on screen with Kyle MacLachlan, the history she has with David Lynch. I thought it lent all of this just a, a much darker edge, but also at the end when she was talking to Gordon Cole and he just totally believed her. I thought there was a bit of grace there, but as you said, Jeff, we kind of leave Diane just sipping very painfully from an airplane bottle of booze and, and what she says is cheers to the FBI That's and just right, yeah. the, the, the venom in that I thought was horrifying and in that scene when she's talking to Dirty Cooper and she she asked, you know, where did you know where did we last see each other? And there's just that close up on Dirty Cooper with her reflection kind of in the window. And what he says is, at your house. I, you know, <laughs> horrifying. We were you know, we were kind of texting about this after watching the episode last night, and you had mentioned the possibility that, you know, what we are to glean from this episode might be that Dirty Cooper, you know, violated or assaulted or, you know, just otherwise took advantage of the these women who are sort of sacred to the Agent Cooper that we know and love from the original series. Very, very disturbing. All the more disturbing because, you know, that scene kind of ends with what seems to be some progress. Progress is always good, no matter how we get there, of sort of, you know, learning what's going on and knowing that our heroes are kind of making some sort of forward momentum. Gordon Cole sort of tells Warden Murphy, don't let this guy out. And, uh, you know... Sure enough, in an episode full of plot momentum, very, very quickly, Dirty Cooper was out. We sort of saw him engage in this interesting sort of mental gamesmanship 
with the warden. Apparently the warden was up to something no good. It involved someone named Joe McCluskey and someone named Mr. Strawberry. Really hoping we get the Mr. Strawberry origin episode sometime soon. But, uh, you know, Jeff, uh, I sort of went back and rewatched parts one and two last week just to kind of like see if any of it was sort of making more sense. And certainly I, I would highly recommend everyone do that at this point. I'm not sure that the plot is a whole lot clearer, but certainly the awareness of the tone of this season helped me really appreciate parts one and two more than the first time I had watched them. But this was really sort of the conclusion of sort of the first phase of Dirty Cooper's plan because he'd been trying to get a hold of his accomplice, Ray, in part two. Ray has some kind of information that pertains to the murder in Buckhorn or something to do with Matthew Lillard. Um, and so that, that was sort of the first step forward in that, you know, extreme CDE subplot that was kind of planted back in part two um but yeah so dirty cooper is back on the prowl uh with his little friend in the glove department probably some sort of badass pistol um so i I don't know just to go from that moment between him and diane which was really moving and dark and strange to him just being out i'm surprised how much more menacing dirty cooper seems to me in part seven you know like I'm, i'm just surprised that the more we learn about him and what he's done just the more fierce he becomes and the more you know hopeful I am for a reckoning between him and Dale and the forces of of good um but you know lots to lots to sort of you know be intrigued about and also worry about in this sort of FBI dirty Cooper sequence of this episode I thought yeah just a couple observations about that I mean I, I love the way that like dirty Cooper like communicates through code um like you know, he he was gonna he's blackmailing the warden to basically get his release, and he has done it by apparently mailing three severed dog legs to associates of of the warden that are encoded with some kind of information about about his dirty deal, dealings. So uh, you know, like don't ever get a dog leg from Dirty Cooper. Who knows what that's gonna mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the other the other plot point I would just say is I believe that Ray and Daria remember I think had accepted that contract to kill Dirty Cooper. So in addition to busting his old associate out and 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 doing some business with them, you might wonder if like what looms there is Dirty Cooper using his uh, his little friend in the glove compartment to uh, to you know get some some information about out of Ray about why he wanted to kill him, which kind of begs the whole question, Darren, is it possible that Dirty Cooper was driving that car through a specific part of, of, of South Dakota so that he would get in an accident, so that he would get caught with that stuff in his trunk, so that he would get put in the same prison with Ray? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, well, it was so, so okay. My, my one read on that, Jeff, because yeah, like, um, I, you know, we had seen him kind of look up this prison in Yankton before going there in part two. But my read on it was maybe he was going there planning on blackmailing the warden, you know, not knowing that he would be sort of caught like that, perhaps not anticipating the sort of violence with which the Black Lodge calling back to him would disrupt him. 
Because, but, but if he did want to get caught, this then begs the deeper question, did he want to interact with the FBI? Did he want them knowing that he was sort of existing? You know, still not entirely sure about that. Although um, we should point out, Jeff, just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, we got a little implication of what Dirty Cooper has been up to for the last 25 years. <laughs> there was a pic- picture that Gordon was sort of sharing of him at his like estate outside of Rio, I think they said. And he basically looks like he's like, you know, some drug lord from an early Fast and Furious sequel. Like, I mean, apparently, like, you know, I sort of I sort of assumed that he'd been like kind of living this sort of grimy, you know, road trip Monty Hellman life over the last, you know, you know, two and a half decades. But apparently he's been living pretty well, uh, you know, all, all around the world, which I thought was interesting to get that kind of confirmation of what he's been up to. Well, and another thing about that, given that idea that he's clearly has amassed a great deal of wealth, um, and at least possessed it at one point in his life, I think that we can now maybe speculate that Dirty Cooper might be number one now on our list of suspects of mysterious billionaire who built the glass box in New York City. So, you know, here we have a clearly villainous character who has amassed a great deal of money and is clearly interested in Black Lodge stuff. So um, I, I'm, I'm one. He's now my top suspect for the for the billionaire. And one other thing about that scene aboard that plane, I just want to give a shout out to all the obsessives who watch the show, who caught that moment in part three or four when Cole and Albert and Tammy go and visit uh, Dirty Cooper for the first time. And Dirty Cooper says, I'm very, very happy to see you again, old friend. But on that first very, he says it backwards. So it sounds like Yurev. Um, I didn't catch that when I first heard it, but a lot of people did and very accurately pointed out that the way that he said it was very spelled backwards. And so it was pretty incredible to see like like it, it was almost as if like Twin Peaks saw that fan theory and then immediately went out and shot a scene to confirm it because the way that <laughs> Gordon Cole even said that like just threw it out there like Yurev like we should know what that meant like I bet most of the audience did it but everyone who analyzed that and had been theorizing it as the Yurev moment um, you know, right on the money. And that whole thing that he did with Tammy's hand kind of uh, going along the knuckles and, and, and noting that Yurev was on the spiritual mound, the ring finger, was a clue to at least Cole in his mind that, that Cooper's soul had been corrupted. And we, we could also kind of just remind people that the ring finger, the owl ring, is that significant there? So, um, yeah, so... Uh, that was a curious bit of business too. Yeah, and on the anonymous billionaire tip, Jeff, you can't let me have even the implication that Billy Zane is still involved in this show, can you? You can't let me nope. just sit here happy with my theory that billionaire John Justice Wheeler is somehow involved in all this. Uh, let, let's round up with America's sweetheart, uh, the greatest character in TV history. Dougie is uh, still on this show. 
And uh, we've talked a bit about this, Jeff, and I don't want to get into this too much because I think it'll factor in more in the future if it factors in ever. Um, in an episode where a lot of stuff seemed to be happening in the other plot lines, we suddenly cut to Dougie at the Lucky 7 insurance agency. And the implication was it seemed to just be later in the day from where we last left him in part six talking to his boss, Bushnell Mullins. Um, implication to me reading that we should be very aware that these different sequences we're seeing in different locations are perhaps not following the same chronological time. Right. Um, but we got a truly wonderful scene that I'm still running through my head because I'm trying to figure out if it was a reference or if I'm just crazy. Always a possibility. Both are possibilities. Um, Dougie was visited by the police. <laughs> his his crooked colleague Anthony was in the office when the uh, receptionist came in to say that the police are here to see you, which led to my favorite line reading of the week, which was Tom Sizemore saying, police, that reminds me of a phone call I have to make as he sort of <laughs> ran out the door. In came the policeman, and I'm not sure you caught this, Jeff. Um, the lead policeman, played by the uh, comedy actor David Hector, introduced all three of them as Officers Fusco. Um, and if you read the credits, it turned out that they were all surnamed Fusco. And so we can interpret that they're brothers. And there is a comic strip, and I'm the kind of kid who, who grew up reading the comic strip every day. There is a comic strip called the Fusco Brothers, That's right. which is a sort of weird, weird, sort of, you know, semi absurdist, um, you know, comic strip about brothers who live together and they also have a talking dog. Not sure if that was meant to be a reference or just if uh, Lynch and Frost liked the Fusco brothers. But uh, basically what, what followed was this scene that began as an interrogation of them talking to Dougie. But then Janie E. and Bushnell Mullins came in. Another great standout episode for Naomi Watts, who... <laughs> kept on turning the questions back onto the policeman and then almost kind of like like, like I have to go back and, and rewatch this it almost seemed like Bushnell Mullins just suddenly appeared out of nowhere and he suddenly started to interrogate the policeman and saying what's going on you've you've found the car haven't you and it emerged that you know they were indeed investigating the explosion of Dougie's car um, more credence being uh, given to the theory that this Dougie is somehow leading a very charmed life um, they sort of said yeah, like, uh, you know, it was found with the bodies of a known of gang car thieves, to which Janie E. said, well, there you go. Like, problem solved. <laughs> um, just, just a wonderful bit of sort of, you know, Twin Peaksian comedy in this sequence that then led into um, a moment that uh, y you've already made this sequence much better for me, but uh, we sort of saw Janie E. and Dougie walk outside, having established that Ike the Spike Statler likes to kill people by stabbing them the show immediately broke that rule and had him just emerge out of the crowd with a gun um which of course is a wonderful and very unexpected reference back to the statue with the gun in the square that i believe points in the exact same direction that ike was pointing his gun but you know dale sort of went full born identity grabbed him you pointed out for me jeff that the sound effects in this scene are very kind of kung fu chop socky style 
And I, I have to admit, Jeff, right as I was kind of thinking to myself, all right, you know, I mean, we get it. He's having sort of a Jason Bourne moment. He's kind of remembering his, his, his muscle memory. This is a scene I've seen before. Uh, right then, the little talking tree appeared and said, <laughs> squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off. So have to say, I've never seen that before. <laughs> When evil brain tree doppelganger uh, like shows up, like that little <laughs> the little baby version of it growing out of the ground. I mean, it's if you go back and look, it's actually rooted in the concrete as if growing out of it. <laughs> Squeeze his hand off. Um, uh, was was uh, you know uh, uh, the, the the question I had in that moment is who is the brain tree talking to? Um, is he talking to Cooper, like squeeze Ike's hand off? Is he speaking to Ike? Um, who's he cheering for in that fight? And something that I can't take any credit for, but a couple like sharp-eyed theorists, people have been theorizing that Cooper's obsession with um, Bushnell Mullen's boxing poster in Mullen's office, um, speaking about like you know a battle and bud going four rounds probably foreshadows Cooper having four different conflicts, some fights in order to get his mind back, um, you know, with, with Ike the Spike being maybe round one, round two might be those two thugs that are trying to assassinate Dougie. Uh, round three could be the Mitchum brothers that own the casino that are out for him. And round four, obviously, being Dirty Cooper. So that could be, especially what you're just pointing out, that the statue with the gun, um, we, we might now understand these fixations to be foreshadowings of conflict to come for Cooper. So, but again, not my idea. This is something that has come from fandom. I love that idea. And it seems to be, it's coming to pass here in this episode, but yeah, squeeze his hand off. I love that moment. And then later on as the crime scene is being processed and we're getting these uh, rather odd filmmaking choices for Lynch given like, like, well, not that it's funny to call a, a Lynch filmmaking choice odd, but some handheld <laughs> camera, some, so his camera slightly simulating kind of like TV news interviewing bystanders. One of them said that, uh, um, that, that, that Cooper moved like a cobra. Um, he was no victim, you know. And then you got that great weird shot of the crime scene investigators processing the scene. And you see them like peeling some like what I think skin. If you look carefully at that scene where Ike the Spike lets go of the gun, you see his palm is bloody. So that stuff that they're peeling off of the gun is Ike's flesh. And he must have been gripping that gun super tight. Or I almost got the wonder if, like, did Cooper have some, like, super hot healing touch that fused, like, Ike's hand to the gun and made it burn so that he would both want to let it go, but, like, fuse some flesh onto the whole thing? But, yeah, you got that shot of watching the cops peeling the flesh off. But that weird effect where, you know, it darkens the rest of the screen, but not completely, but leaves almost a spotlight on the peeled flesh. Ike the Spike deciding to shoot uh, uh, Dougie instead of coming after him with his spike. We remember that Ike injured his spike last week when he killed the women, so I guess he had to resort to using a gun. All I have to add, Jeff, is you were theorizing that does Cooper have some sort of, uh, you know, make things hot power. I was recalling, you know... 
when else in this show has someone been amnesiac but seemed to have superpowers? Could it be that Cooper has super strength like a certain one-eyed amnesiac had oh. back in season two? Jeff, does it turn out that Nadine being a super-powered amnesiac is the most important plot line in Twin Peaks history? <laughs> not sure. Not sure. Could be. Nadine, she moved like a cobra. Um, <laughs> Jeff, uh, the only other helpful thing I have to add is I was kind of wondering if those stylistic choices that Lynch was making with the sort of shots of the crowd and, you know, the crowd kind of naming Douglas Jones and, uh, you know, we, we got a couple moments of them reacting to it. That seemed to be the sort of like point of view of news footage, which would theoretically mean that Douglas Jones's face would perhaps appear in the news which could perhaps mean that someone might see that face, someone FBI-related or Dirty Cooper-related or anyone, really, might see that face and put two and two together, which could imply that someone's moving closer to find him. Um, that was my hope. That was a big leap, admittedly, but I, I, I sort of feel like in an episode full of forward plot momentum, the, the implication that you know Douglas Jones may go, may go national with his sort of awareness. Lots to chew on this week, but I feel like we kind of did a good job of kind of going through the major sort of moments of things really picking up in Twin Peaks this season. You know, uh, this episode opened with Jerry Horn lost in the woods looking for his car. In retrospect, when you get to the end of it, you kind of wonder if the show is reflecting back um, what it was probably anticipating, the the experience of his audience. Um, uh, a, a little lost in the woods, a little disoriented, maybe, maybe all things considered, a, a little high on the strangeness of this whole thing, but probably feeling lost. And, and this episode was about maybe helping them and a lot of the other characters feel a little unlost and, and, and finding a car, if you will, to start driving this thing forward. And finally, one mystery that we just don't have time to explore, but, um, but where is Billy? <laughs> <laughs> the very last scene this of this is... show is, is instead of being at the roadhouse, ringing us out with a band, we went to a, a, a very busy night at the Double R Diner in full swing, and all of a sudden this guy, by I think, I think this is uh, Riley Lynch, I think it's David Lynch's son, playing a character I think named Bing, coming into the diner and kind of going, where's Billy? And then, and then, uh, and then, and then just, and everyone just kind of shrugs and then, and then everyone just kind of goes about their business. Um, not that they were ever really stopped ever. And I thought it was just a great sum up image for what it's like to live in the town, a town of Twin Peaks where just bizarre stuff happens like that all the time. I suspect that Billy is probably the farmer and that the farmer's gone missing. And just to add to that, Jeff, is that Riley Lynch actually did appear. He was in the band that played, uh, I think back in part five when we first saw Richard Horn. Um, I, I was literally wondering if just like this was the band after that performance going out to the Double R Diner. Everybody out there, we love hearing from you. We've had some great conversations on Twitter the last few weeks about the show. You can tweet at us. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. We also just did a great dive into the mailbag which you can find up on EW.com love getting emails from people some great theories some great points some great ideas uh, you can email us at Twin Peaks at EW.com while you're at it if you like listening to us as much as we like hearing from you 
You should. You can go on iTunes, give us a rate, give us a review, let us know what you think. Can't rate us with heads of Major Briggs, but hopefully sometime soon. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next Monday to talk about part eight of Twin Peaks on Showtime.